Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed. So you guys have fun. Everybody tell them buckets. Great. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Romans chapter 10. Um, but just a quick caveat, it's going to be a minute before we get there. Romans chapter 10 is where we're going to camp out. So um, two quick things that have nothing to do with this morning, but just want to go ahead and throw them out there. Uh, first, July 4th is on a Sunday. Do you guys know that? All right, so uh, obviously we meet in a government building that does not want to work on July 4th. Surprise. So go ahead and put it down. July 4th, we're going to have worship at the park, Uhula Creek Park. Bring your own picnic. We'll have spike ball, can jam, all those kind of things. Uh, so July 4th, we're going to keep saying this in case you forget it or miss it. We will not be here. But the good news is if you still show up here, just drive two minutes down the road and you'll be there. Sound good? Good. All right. Second thing, uh, and this might come as a spoiler alert, but uh, as most of you guys know, we are in fact Southern Baptists. Don't hold that against us. Uh, but here's what I want to throw a caveat out. Um, this week is the Southern Baptist Convention. So I'm leaving and a few others are leaving tonight. We're going up to Nashville so that we can vote and do all the Baptisty stuff. There is a very good chance that some of the things that are going on within the convention are going to be like national news. Um, so Listen to me, not to them. Sound good? If I come back next Sunday and say, hey, we're all good, we're going to stay in SBC, then like, don't sweat it. Uh, but there's a good chance it's going to go, what do you kids call it these days? Viral? Is that right? So there's a good chance some stuff might hit the fan. Uh, if you don't know what that means, I'm not going to tell you because I'm Baptist. We don't say those languages. So just, just don't watch that stuff. If, there, if there's anything of importance that needs to be brought up, just trust me and the elders that will bring it up. Sound good? All right, if that, if that means nothing to you, praise God. Now, uh, I mentioned last week that we're taking a break over the summer, so we've been pre preaching through the book of Hebrews. We finished up Hebrews chapter 11 a couple weeks ago. Uh, last week was an off week, uh, but we're starting a new series this summer, and this is kind of a rhythm that the branch has done for the last seven years. Uh, seven years, that sounds crazy. Uh, last seven years, and, and namely because we want our college students that go home uh, to not miss the massive teachings that we're doing. So we'll put a pause in our uh, books that we're preaching through throughout the summer so that when they come back after summer break, we pick up right where they left off. So uh, starting back in September, we'll be back in Hebrews chapter, 13, or chapter 12. Uh, but for the summer, we're going to stop and we're going to teach through the Apostles' Creed. So Here's my hope for this morning. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, it's basically two sermons in one. I'm going to aim for 35 minutes. Oh, I forgot to stop my timer. So 35 minutes from right now. Uh, that's my hope. We'll see if that happens. But here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, the first thing is why. Why are we taking this summer to teach through the Apostles' Creed, right? The second part is we're going to start off with the first two words in the Creed, which is I believe. So part one, why are we even doing this Apostles' Creed language? And then part two, I believe. So just for fun, who has, was raised in a church where the Apostles' Creed was recited? Anybody? Okay. Who could, this is going to be real fun, who could actually recite it word for word right now? Carol, you want to go for it? No? no? <laughs> I mean, you seem kind of confident. You're like, I got this. No, no one wants to go for it? I've got, a, I've got a prize for someone that wants to do it, if you can do it. All of it. Huh? Trust me that I have a prize. I'm a pastor. I do not lie. Anybody? Good, because I don't have a prize. So, um, 
So let me just kind of give some background into the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to give four reasons for us, and, and we might say these four reasons every single week of why we think it's important for us to stop, slow down, and go through the Apostles' Creed. So real quickly, the Apostles' Creed is the oldest statement of faith in the Christian church written sometime in the second century A.D. The creed defines core Christian beliefs about God, Jesus, the church, salvation, and other theological topics. Now, Based on uh, popular belief, Apostles' Creed was written by the apostles. That's not actually true, uh, but it was written around 2nd century, so really heavily influenced by the apostles' teaching. So over the last two centuries, the Apostles' Creed uh, has really primarily done two things. But one, it's been used to correct error. So as the church was being formed, as it's being grown, um, the Apostles' Creed has always been that steady doctrine, that steady piece to correct error. But more importantly, it's been used for spiritual formation. So how do a people of God become formed into the truth, into the doctrine, and the knowledge of God? Well, primarily it's been through the Apostles' Creed. So the Creed is simply a summary of what the Bible teaches, a narrative of God's redemption, lo- redemptive love, and a concise statement of basic Christianity. So when we say the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, that's what we're talking about. And Al Mohler would say this about it. And if you're more interested about the creed, Moeller has an incredible book that I would just recommend you going through. When we confess the Apostles' Creed alone or in corporate worship, we are declaring the truth of the Christian faith with the very words that gave early Christians hope, sent martyrs confidently to their deaths, and have instructed Christ's church through the centuries. So, so this is what's happening when we're reciting, when we're studying through the Apostles' Creed. We're, we're connecting with those that, that give them strength to walk death in the face and say, man, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, I'm, I'm in. This is what this confession did. So, so why are we stopping to teach this? Why are we stopping to teach through the Apostles' Creed? Let me give you four quick reasons. First, the Creed will help us understand who God is. So it's a simple statement of faith that will help us understand who God is. So I've, I've quoted this often uh, because this statistic just really bothers me. Uh, Barna, a couple years ago, put out this study that I think it's around 82% of non-Christians think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible, right? That, that's a quote by my boy, Benny Franklin. That is not straight out of the Scripture, Benjamin Franklin. I, I call him Benny. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. Not biblical, Right? But when you poll the believers, the Christians, is this in the Bible? You would think that like that statistic would go way down, but that statistic drops 1%. So 82% of non-Christians think God helps who those, those who help themselves is in the Bible. 81% of Christians believe that as well. So we're just living in a day and age of biblical illiteracy. We do not understand the grand narrative of Scripture. If God only helps those who help themselves, then, then why did Christ die? We don't understand the beauty of the gospel if we believe that, that we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and when God recognizes that, then he chooses to say, that's not what we believe. We believe that we're dead in our sin and our trespasses, and God alone, through his Son alone, is what saves us. So, so this the creed teaching through it is going to help us to understand who God is and also give us the grand narrative of Scripture. So we'll, as we'll read it in a minute, um, we'll recite it together, you'll see that it's from beginning to end, the grand narrative of the Scriptures. So first and foremost, the creed will help us understand who God is. Second, the creed connects us as a family of God, both now 
and in the past. So the creed helps us to connect as the family of God, both now in the present, but also connect us to those in the past. Early Christians called the creed the rule of faith and turned to it as they worshiped and taught the faithful. When the early church recited this, it was simultaneously their greatest act of rebellion and greatest act of allegiance. So they were rejecting what the culture was pushing, saying, understanding. It was the greatest act of rebellion against the culture because they were allegiancing themselves to God alone, not what the culture was pushing. In this beautiful moment when the people of God recite this creed, they are saying, we don't believe the story that the culture is telling us. So when you look at creeds and catechisms and all this kind of stuff, what's happening is they're looking at the culture at large and they're writing these creeds based on the biblical truth of Scripture to denounce what the world is teaching them. And how much more do we need that right now with the craziness of the culture, how quickly this moral revolution is happening, and sexual revolution, and, and truth is subjective. And I mean, how much more do we need to be concrete in what we believe and reject what the culture is teaching us? And so it's connecting us to the family at large, our ancestors in the faith, who for the joy that was set before them endured the cross, right? That's who Christ is. It connects us to him. Then it connects us to all of our forefathers in the faith. And now it connects us to one another. This is an easy way for us to gauge on whether we partner with, support, lock arms with other believers or not. This is an easy way for us to grow in community and stop fighting over secondary issues. Right? If, if it's crystal clear within the creed and you believe that, we're good. If you want to sit around and argue about like eschatology, if you're pre-post, oh, pan, you know, whatever you want, like, who cares? I'm not going to argue about that stuff. If you want to sit down and debate like young earth, old earth, who cares? The, the crystal clear things that are made true, the doctrines of God that we see in the creed is what binds us together. As we're looking for ministry partners around Dahlonega, this is just a simple way for us to say, yes, we're going to partner with these guys because they believe all of this. Or no, we're, we're preaching a different God, a different gospel because of these truths that we don't align on. So, so it helps us grow as a family of God. Third, the creed gives us an opportunity to teach. For long, unbroken centuries, it has stood as one of the most crucial teaching instruments of the Christian faith, along with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Now, there's this myth, and, and I hope that it's dying away, but it's only up to the pastors on what we're supposed to teach. That when Jesus said the Great Commission, go make disciples, teaching them all that I commanded you, that, that's just for, if you get paid, then that's your gig. But if not, I don't, I don't have to teach the truth of Scripture. Well, that's just not true, and this, as the Apostles' Creed, gives us a very helpful teaching tool, a discipleship tool that we can meet with, we can go through, and I, I get it. Like, I understand. I, I don't know enough. I, I mean, for instance, this book right here, does anyone else own a book this thick? Well, if you haven't been to seminary, stop, all right? Do you know the subtitle of this book? An Introduction to Christian Belief, right? So this is John Frame Systematic Theology, an introduction to Christian belief. So I can understand how people, lay people can see books like this and go, I can never teach. Like, I can never know enough to teach the Bible to make disciples because I have to read that, like, I'm, I'm going to be dead before I finish this book, right? That's just not true. The Apostle Creed gives us a very simple, this is not a book giveaway, by the way. That was really expensive, and I'm not giving that away. You can go buy it, right? So if you recited the Creed, that was not going to be your prize 
because I had to sell a kid for that. So what we do, I'm just kidding, I don't sell kids, that's too far. Let me take a step back. So what we do here through the Apostles' Creed, my hope is that you will hear how we teach it, how simplistic we can understand this, and then use this as a teaching tool to turn around and teach others. Because really, and I don't know if y'all have caught up on this, but a lot of what the branch is doing under the radar is teaching how to lead your families, how to lead your homes, how to lead in discipleship groups. Like, have you ever thought about the structure of family groups? How simplistic it is that you tick, pick a text, you ask the same three questions every single week? That's intentional, right? Because we're trying to model, especially for the men, here's how you can lead your family in family worship. We're trying to model for the college students, here's what a discipleship curriculum could look like. Pick a text, ask the same three questions, and work through it together. That's intentional for us so that that can be replicated in your homes and in your lives. And in the same way, we're teaching through this as an intentional tool for replication so you can disciple those who make disciples. So it gives us an opportunity to teach, it, 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 simplistic, it simplifies it so much. So uh, lastly, number four, the creed allows us to hold fast to what we believe. It allows us to hold fast to what we believe. So, so we see this and we understand this, especially if you have children, you're trying to teach our kids something that, that they can remember, that they can understand, uh, and they can hold fast to for the rest of their lives, even, even if they don't process it all yet. So uh, it's just been uh, remarkable for us as we've taught our kids because they're sponges, right? So uh, when we say prayers in our home, especially around dinner time, when we finish, we sing the doxology together. And I thought that that was going to take our kids forever to learn the doxology, but it didn't. Because they can sing Ruby Rock like that. So they just, un- no one knows Ruby Rock. Man, y'all need to have some kids, bro. Ruby Rock slaps hard. You should go on Spotify today and listen. It's awesome. So anyways, they just soak it up. So right now we're teaching through the Lord's Prayer, trying to get them to memorize the Lord's Prayer. And you know who I've been most impressed with in the memorization of the Lord's Prayer? My four-year-old. So we take these basic truths, these basic statements of faith, examples in the scripture, and we teach them and they can hold fast to what we believe. So, so three-fourths of my grandparents, right? So on one side, both grandma, grandpa, the other side, uh, grandma, passed away from, uh, well, you can't pass away from Alzheimer's, but, but complications from Alzheimer's. And what was remarkable through that process is at the end of their life, when they had no clue who I was, who their sons and daughters were, they had no clue of their surroundings, just the basic truths that you would think that they would understand, uh, their mental state had gone so far that they could not remember that. But you know what they did know? Hymns. They could sit there not knowing anyone in the room, not knowing their address, and not knowing, but they could sing hymns over and over and over again. They could recite those things. And this is what we want to do. We want this to be a hymn in our hearts that we can always go back to, that we can hold fast to, that we can remember as an encouragement and a joy. So, real quick, let me just address the 10,000-foot elephant in the room, 10,000-pound-foot massive elephant. We are not putting the Apostles' Creed in the same authority structure as the Bible, right? So, so why are we preaching through the Apostles' Creed on a Sunday morning? Are we saying that the Apostles' Creed is authoritative, just like the Scriptures? Absolutely not. Creeds do not hold any authority but point outside of themselves 
to the Word of God. So we're using the creed to ultimately point back to the goodness and the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, so one illustration I heard that I just think articulates this the best is just consider the Apostles' Creed to be like the moon, right? The moon reflects the sun. The moon has no power within itself uh, to light up anything, but all it does is reflects the light of the sun to the world. And for us in the Apostles' Creed, the creed holds no authority by itself. It holds no power by itself, but it's simply taking the message, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Scripture, condensing it down and reflecting that truth back to us. Does that make sense? So don't confuse this or hold this, because I know we, we might have some Baptist bobs that have grown up believing, like, man, there's no creeds other than the Bible. Why are we teaching? I, I understand your concern, but we're teaching the God of the Bible, and we're using the creed as a lens for that. Does that make sense? All right, so with all that being said, let's read it together. Sound good? Has, it, has anyone not heard or read through the Apostles' Creed? Just raise your hand real quick. All right, so we're going to read through it together. It's going to be on the screen, right? Boom. And then we'll take some time to teach through it. All right, you ready? But don't let me down, church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, real quick, before people storm out of here, Catholic is lowercase, all right? Catholic meaning universal church, right? So we're not Catholic. We good? Universal church, that's what that term means. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into Romans 10. We're going to read 5 through 12, but hone in on verses 9 and 10. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time together that we can read, we can study, and understand who you are. Uh, Father, thank you for the example of, of men that have sat before us, that sat down and wrote this creed, that we can read not to uh, put any man on a platform or any creed on the platform, uh, but so that we can truly understand you and who you are and the scripture that you've freely given us. Uh, thank you for loving us. Thank you for going to the cross for us. And uh, So we just pray, Father, that you would uh, speak to us, that you would open our eyes to the text this morning and change our lives. It's your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Romans 10. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. But like I said, we're really going to hone in on 9 and 10, but I want us to see the framework of this. Romans 10, 9 through 10. For Moses writes about the righteous that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. 
But here's where we're honing in. Because if you confess with your mouth that, the Lord, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. From the heart, from, excuse me, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew, Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the Apostles' Creed clearly starts out with this phrase, I believe. And really, when you look at it, that is repeated every stanza within the creed. I believe, I believe, I believe. And belief, as we see and understand through Scripture, is a massive thing for us. So in the next 15 minutes, here's what I want to try to paint through Romans 10. Here's what I think Paul is telling us. That the greatest threat to those in the church is the confusion of knowledge and belief. So the greatest threat for us in this room and those around us is this, the confusion between knowledge and belief. One is saving and one is damning. So we have to see that there's an intentionality for the Apostles' Creed to start with the phrase, I believe and not I know. Because I believe is saving, I know is damning. And so in the early church, uttering these words, this credo, I believe, meant identifying in the closest possible way with the gospel. So most of the time, this creed was recited uh, right before baptism took place. So salvation has happened as they're choosing to identify with Christ through baptism. They would recite this creed, I believe, and go into it. And so as we see and as we understand, there's no Christianity without belief, without teaching, and without obedience to Christ. But we live in this culture where knowledge and belief can almost be synonymous. So the creed is going to draw us back to Romans to see that those things are not synonymous at all. Because look again with me at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and most of the time, and I'm going to pick on the South Bible Belt pretty heavily this morning. Even though I'm here, I chose to pastor here where God called us here, but, but we could have gone anywhere we wanted to, but we felt God was calling us here for a purpose. And, and really, this is a massive purpose. This is a massive point of this. Uh, because growing up, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, was it? Uh, like, what does it mean to be saved? Oh, we'll just confess that Jesus is Lord. Like that's, that's all you got to do. I mean, I've heard this happen over and over and over again. Just confess it. But we've got to stop and slow down because really that, that verbiage costs us nothing. For us to say, yeah, I, I believe Jesus is Lord, costs us literally nothing. And most of the time, if we can be honest, that might actually be to a benefit to us. I mean, especially like business owners, entrepreneurs, all these kind of, we might actually be more successful because I'm at, that's a Christian-ran company. You need to do business with them. Some of the Christian-run companies are the worst guys I know. But they put that fish on the business, they run it as that because it gives them more business, right? So, so we have to be careful here. Just because we say, I confess, does that actually mean that we are a believer? Is that what it's required of us, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we're, we're in, we're good? Oh, I believe it, right? I understand it. But here's where we have to see the distinction, the massive difference between knowing and believing. And forgive me if I've used this before, but this image just really grosses me out. Um, I have a friend that has a McDonald's 
uh, Happy Meal, right? Like a whole cheeseburger and fries. And it's been a while since I've seen this, but on their counter that has been there for six years. I mean, it's postured up in like a little, uh, what's that called? Is my mom here? Pound cake, pound cake. One of the pound cake, like just sitting there on display right in front of the house. So everyone can see this six-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger. There's no cheese. It's plain and french fries. And they show this as a display because we all know that McDonald's is not real food, right? Like we understand it. Six years. There's so many preservatives in that thing. It has not expired. It looks, there's no mold. There's no grossness to it. We, we know this, but man, there's sometimes like that double cheeseburger sounds good, right? And we pull in there, like even with the knowledge that this is not real meat, I don't know what this is doing to my body, and we eat them. Sometimes we eat too. And we go, hey, bro, can I get an Oreo before? No, our ice cream machines are down. Like, dang it, right? Like, like we, we know, and we can do this with anything. We, we know that through good diet and exercise, we are going to live a longer and healthier life. But do we eat well and exercise? Uh, we know that it would make more sense for us to invest into our future retirement for either us, our kids, college funds, all that. But, man, Amazon just start calling our name. It'll be here in two days. Right? So, so we know better, but we still do it. So when we start looking at the distinction, what is a knowledge that is actually damning to us and what is a belief that is actually saving to us, we look none other than to where we've been for the last eight weeks of Hebrews 11. What were they accredited for? That their belief led them to action, that their faith cost them something and they walked in obedience in that. So they didn't just know, Abraham didn't just know, he believed and that belief led to action. So if we look at this Apostles' Creed, we cannot identify intellectually, I know that to be true, and think that that is saving faith. That when we look through the Apostles' Creed, we have to believe, and believe to the point that it actually goes somewhere. We actually do something with it. And this is Paul's thought as he continues this. Look with me at, again at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you have to know but you also have to believe. And verse 10 gives us the order of this progression. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we see the progression of salvation for us. That we see the knowledge, the head, leads to the belief, which is the heart, and then confession takes place. So, so often our culture wants to go from the knowledge to the confession I know Jesus is Lord, so I'm going to confess it, but do we actually believe it? Has it made it down to our heart? Because Scripture would say, from the heart one believes and is justified. So where does the justification, where does the uh, being made right in front of the presence of God, that you were a sinner, now God has justified you through the blood of his Son, where does that take place, in the knowledge or the belief? So if we know and confess, then there's been no justification that's taken place. But if we know and believe, then we have been saved. Then the justification has been taken place. Then the blood of his son has covered us, and then we confess. But far too often, that no to confession is what is so popular in our culture, that we have bypassed the belief. And we see this, look with me at verse 14, because Paul gives this uh, example 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Here's the belief. And how are they to believe into him who they have never heard? Knowledge. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, another example of knowledge. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we preach for knowledge then the saving grace, the saving work of Jesus Christ regenerates your heart, leads to belief, and that is salvation. So we have to, as we see this Apostles' Creed, start off understanding that an empty confession without a belief in the heart is mere hypocrisy. It is not saving faith. And we can see examples all over Scripture of men and women that knew, that had a fundamental understanding of the God of the Bible, of the Scriptures, but there was no belief present. I mean, we'd have to look no farther than the Pharisees, who did everything exactly right, but the belief wasn't there. And so what happens? Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. The cups were clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. That this category isn't just modern-day culture. It exists throughout history and definitely throughout biblical times. So, let me be frank. We are ignorant to think that that is not a cultural reality for us right now. That there is some of us in this room that are wrestling with just the knowledge that led to confession but have bypassed the belief now, now, I mean, I'll just be candid with you because it's one of those things I, I hope to ask God when I get to heaven, but I actually don't think I'm, it's going to matter when I get there. Because when I was nine, I was baptized, I prayed, I did all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I really genuinely think that there was a knowledge there that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from the sins. I, I believe I understood that intellectually. But you look at the trajectory of my life from nine to 17, that, there was just no proof. There was no fruit. There was no evidence. I knew what to do, what not to do. I was a leader in all my RAs. I was a leader within youth group, all this sort of stuff, because I knew how to play the scene. But there was a defining moment when I was 17 where the belief came and the rest of my life changed. I mean, I can pinpoint that exact moment where my desires changed, my heart changed, the plans for my life changed. Everything changed and radicalized in that moment. So for me, I genuinely believe from 9 to 17, Jesus was my Savior. I knew about him. But when I was 17, Jesus became my Lord and I actually believed. And that belief was called as justification. Now, when I get to heaven, I might ask. I might not. I probably won't care because I'll be in heaven rejoicing with the angels, right? But that's the question. And so if that's true for me, that framework, and I've had story after story after story of people that have shared a similar testimony, I just know that that's got to be the reality for some of us. We've grown up in the cultural South, the Bible Belt. We've understood, we've heard from the day that we were born. And, and I praise God for that. I praise God that my kids will always be raised in church. I hope that they know nothing different than the goodness of Jesus Christ. I hope they don't go through these rebellious seasons like I did. But we have to be careful because that knowledge can inoculate us, can, can give us a false sense of confidence. So there's a massive difference between knowing and believing Belief leads to action, and knowing may or may not. Belief always leads to action. Knowledge may or may not. You may be able to do the correct action for a season, but it is not sustainable. 
So in the last few moments, let's take this idea of knowing versus believing and just look at a few lines of the creed to see how this starts to pull out in ourselves. Is that okay? I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from what we'll be teaching, just to paint the picture between know and believe. So first, let's look, I believe God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Creator of heaven and earth. So, so what is the distinguishment here then that I know that God is the creator of heaven and earth and I actually believe it? Knowledge would look something like this. Yeah, I, I get it. I read Genesis 1. I understand God created everything. That's great. It's kind of boring though. Like that was elementary. I learned when I was like six. So, so why don't we sit around like let's talk about how evolution could fit into this. Let's nerd out on the different views of young earth, old earth. And, and I'm not disparaging those kind of healthy conversations. But if, you're, if you get bored with the fact that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, if that does not stir your affections, that does not bring you joy, but it's boring so that you want to move on to, let's pretend this higher road, let's talk about these uh, deeper waters then there might be some knowledge there, but, but maybe what an example of belief would look like is this. If God truly created everything and holds everything together by his word, that means he's in complete control at all times. So then this hardship that I'm walking through has been created for me to grow me in the image of him, so let's walk. It, it changes the view of hardships, sufferings, it changes the view of how we view the world because if God has created everything, if he holds everything together, then he's holding this situation that I'm in together. Then he's sustaining me through this. Just as he sustained the entire atmosphere, the entire world with his voice, he's sustaining me through this. I, I, I believe it. I'm not going to fret over this. If God can create the heavens and the earth by a word, he's got this situation under control. That's a belief. That's a distinction between knowing and believing. Does that make sense? So, so let's look at maybe a different example. We see a little later in the creed, the forgiveness of sins. I believe Christ on the cross, there is forgiveness of sins. Now, again, acknowledgeably, yeah, I know, Jesus Christ on the cross, saved me from my sins, got it. What else? Was that penal substitutionary atonement? How did that actually work? Like, what was the actual process? Again, not disparaging theology, but if it's a knowledge base, then that's all you pursue. Knowledge, 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 because it's not made it to the heart. It's not gripped who you are. One of the, I mean, it just drives me up the wall, if I can just be candid, is how quickly that phrase can just roll off our tongues today. Yeah, Jesus Christ died on the cross, saved me from sins. What's for lunch? Like, we can just skip over that phrase, like, that means nothing. But apart from that truth, we have nothing. Apart from Christ on the cross, what are we even doing here? So what does belief in that phrase mean? When you understand the forgiveness of your sins so much that you start to naturally forgive those who sin against you. That how can we freely hold back the grace that God has given us? No, we must show it. We must forgive those. We must turn the other cheek because when we understand, when we believe that we were sinful, wretched human beings, but Christ forgave us from that by paying the ultimate sacrifice, then it's a natural repercussion for us to start forgiving those that have sinned against us. Now, can I just, true pastor's confession? We are teaching our kids through, you know, the Lord's Prayer, as I mentioned, and I am 
hoping that they don't ask about that part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Like, I'm hoping because there's going to be a massive inconsistency when they read, as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm just, I'm just waiting for that hypocrisy to be revealed. Hey, hey, Dad, if that's true, then why did you get in that guy's face and point his, your finger at the guy at the Braves game that pushed Mommy down and said a lot of bad words? Shouldn't you have forgiven them? But, but Dad, why, why did you turn to Mom and say, if he punches first, I'm going for it, and the elders won't fire me? <laughs> why did you say that? Right? Knowledge will skip right by that. Belief draws you to repentance. Where I have to ask for forgiveness from God the Father first because I know that he will forgive me. And I have to repent to my family. Hey, sorry for not being a true image bearer of God that forgives those who have sinned against us. Knowledge we're going to justify and skip over, believe we own up to because God freely forgives. We can walk into that. That's the forgiveness of sins. Maybe two more. And this one, you guys will be good because you're here, but this one is surprisingly becoming more and more controversial through this COVID time. I believe in the Holy Catholic Universal Church, the communion of saints, the gathering of the church. Knowledge would say, I know that the church is important. I'll try my best to get there, but the weather has been great. The fish are biting. I'm out. We've got this going on. We've got that going on. In this season, churches can't be a priority for us. Now, that's a knowledge. We, we know it. We, we know the gathering of the saints is important, but we just don't have time right now. We know. We'll, we'll get back to being regular there. Belief is we understand that this is the bride of Christ gathered. This is how God has instructed us to come together, to worship him, to be together, pushing each other to be more like him. So when we believe, not just know, but we believe this is how God desires to be worshipped. This is how God has designed the church to work. We make it a true priority. We show up, we represent, not out of a legalistic formation, because this is what's the best thing for us. We believe it. And lastly, the life everlasting. The life everlasting, eternal life with him forever. I know that to be true, man. When I listen, to only, I can only imagine, I just tear up just thinking about how great it is. Uh, does everyone know that song, I Can Only Imagine? All right, just make sure. There were some blank stares and thought there was a generation gap. You should go listen. It's a great song. I know it's going to be great, but here's where belief comes in. Do we live, structure our lives in light of eternity forever? Are we sowing seeds for now that are going to be burned up, sold, or destroyed the moment that we pass away? Or are we sowing up seeds in heaven? Are we living with eternity in view? I was shocked our neighbor passed away during COVID and how quickly her house was on the market. I mean, funeral, and I'm not dogging the family. I'm, it's their house. It's whatever they wanted to do. But the day of the funeral, they're out there cleaning out her house. The day of. And Brad has talked about that. I mean, geez louise. How quickly that stuff goes. How quickly that house was sold. So we make our house our possession. Guess what? Your kids are going to sell it really quickly. We, we make our things a priority 
all that stuff is going to end up sold or in a dump somewhere. But we believe that there's going to be a life everlasting. We do not build our kingdom here. So as we stop and think about this, let, let, let me maybe just press on one more thing. How many people were following Jesus, knew about Jesus, pursuing Jesus in his earthly ministry? Tens of thousands, the multitudes, right? I mean, what always followed Jesus? The crowds. Jesus is dead, resurrected. How many people were left? 120. 120. Tens of thousands knew the great works that Jesus was doing. 120 believed and persevered and were left. So what does this mean for us? Why does the creed start with this? Why are we teaching through this? Why is Paul hitting this point? Because knowledge is damning, but belief is salvific. Belief is a, re, is a sign that justification has taken place. We can say we know, but we must believe. So, here's the question. Do you know or do you believe? Are you going through the motions, or has there been a belief that has gripped you? And I'm not just trying to, like, get you to doubt your salvation or anything. Like, that's not what's happening here. But it's a question to ask and it's a thing to be considered because this pride is not worth it because the consequences are eternal. For us to walk in this knowledge that is not actually salvific in nature is not worth it. So I want us to wrestle. I want us to think. I want us to pray. I want us to consider. And what better way to do this than through the act of communion? So uh, praise God. We are at the point where we feel like we can bring communion back. It's something that we did pre-COVID. We've been kind of waiting to make sure everything was good. And so we get to do it starting again today, Lord willing, until we continue on. But here's what I want to ask this morning. Do you know or do you believe? Has there been proof of that belief? Is there action that would show that you truly do Belief? Has there been action that is counterculture to who you were? That it, apart from God saving you, justifying you, redeeming you, you would not be behaving this way? And this is what we stop and we think about. So, communion is a time for, for baptized believers. That's what scripture would tell us. If you've not been baptized as a believer, we would just respectfully say, hey, just sit out, think about it, consider it. But for our baptized believers, man, go take, go remember our belief that Christ came into the world to save sinners like us, to rescue us, to redeem us from eternal hell. But as we take communion, let's just be really quick to separate the difference between knowledge and belief. Communion shows us, the Lord's Supper shows us that what true belief looks like, that Christ has done everything for us. That there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves up from the bootstraps. Christ did everything. That is what we believe. That is what we hold fast. So if you're walking to the communion table, if you're sitting in your seat thinking, man, what do I need to do? How can I be better? The pastor wants me to act better. That is not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that you can't. 
And once you get to that point, belief becomes a lot easier. When you realize that there's nothing you can do apart from the saving work of Christ, there's not enough good deeds, there's not enough good works, you can't give enough, you can't serve enough, you can't love enough, that only Christ can save you, that is where freedom is found, that is where belief is, and that's when communion becomes so much sweeter because we remember. We remember that it's not about us and our good works, but solely the work of Christ on the cross. So I'm going to pray. We've got two stations set up back here if you feel comfortable. Uh, if you're not there, man, please just sit in your seat, pray, reflect. And let's, let's ponder this. Let's ask the Lord to reveal this to us. Do we actually believe or are we even walking through the misconception of knowledge? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. That through your scriptures we can be challenged, that we can be pressed in on and see the massive distinction between knowledge and belief. Father, we can know a lot of good things about you, your word, and what you've accomplished, but until belief has taken place, justification has not. So, Father, I'm asking right now that you would speak to our hearts and convict us. If there is only knowledge and no belief, Father, would we confess that? If there's only knowledge and not a true belief that leads to obedience, that leads to action, Father, would we see the hypocrisy in our lives and would we recognize how damning that is for us? And Father, would we confess with our mouth that you are Lord and would we truly believe? And what is it that we believe in? That you came to this world to save sinners like us. That you went to that cross willingly, laying down your life to rescue us from our sin. And you've redeemed us, you've given us a hope, you've given us a future. And that was part of your Father's plan, that he sent you for that purpose. Because there's nothing we could do. There's no good deeds, there's no good works, there's no favor that we can earn when we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. So let us just not know that fact, Father. Let us believe it and let us be justified through the work of your Son on the cross. And church, let us sit in this moment and consider and think, examine our own hearts before him to determine, do I know these things to be true or do I believe them? And this has that belief led to action. So Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for saving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.